Escape Pod 195 April 18th, 2009 Today's story 26 Monkeys Awesome, The Abyss by Kush Johnson Hello and welcome to Escape Pod I'm Steve Ely We're in the middle week of our 2009 Hugo run. As we do every year, we're presenting the nominees for the Hugo Award in the short story category. The Hugo Award is one of the two top awards in science fiction, and the one with the largest jury. It's voted on by members of this year's and last year's World Science Fiction Convention. Worldcon is very cool. The Hugo Awards are cool. That great stories like this consistently make the ballot makes me feel really good about science fiction. Yeah, that's not deep, but there you go. This year, by coincidence, the Hugo list has a disproportionate number of monkey-themed stories. We're presenting the first of those this week. The story is 26 Monkeys, Also the Abyss, by Kidge Johnson. Miss Johnson lives in a couple of different locations. In classic Heisenberg style, if we told you exactly where she was, we couldn't tell you how fast she was moving. She's the author of two excellent fantasy novels, The Fox Woman and Fudoki, set in the Heian period of Japan, and a couple of dozen short stories, including one of my favorite short story titles, The Evolution of Trickster Stories Among the Dogs of North Park After the Change. This story first appeared in Asimov's in July last year. It's really a fantasy piece, not so much science fiction, but when it comes to Hugo nominees, we don't discriminate. The story is read for... Okay, I should explain this. Two of the Hugo nominees this year, this week's and last week's Exhalation, were also nominated for the Nebula Award. The Nebula is the other major award in SF, voted on by the Science Fiction Writers of America. And this year, the excellent Starship Sofa podcast has run the Nebula nominees. Tony Smith has a terrific knack for matching great stories with great narrators, and he's very kindly agreed to share his recordings of Exhalation and 26 Monkeys with us. For more like this, I strongly encourage you to go to StarshipSofa.com and subscribe to their oral delights. This week's narrator, courtesy of Starship Sofa, is Diane Severson, a professional soprano singer and instructor living in Hanover, Germany, and a member of the classical girl group Elysium. So, settle down with some cotton candy and popcorn. It's story time. 26 Monkeys Also, The Abyss by Kish Johnson. 1. Amy's big trick is that she makes 26 monkeys vanish on stage. 2. She pushes out a clawfoot bathtub and asks audience members to come up and inspect it. The people climb in and look underneath, touch the white enamel, run their hands along the lion's feet. When they're done... Four chains are lowered from the stage's fly space. Amy secures them to holes drilled along the tub's lip and gives a signal, and the bathtub is hoisted ten feet into the air. She sets a stepladder next to it. She claps her hands, and the twenty-six monkeys on stage run up the ladder one after the other and jump into the bathtub. The bathtub shakes as each monkey thuds in among the others. The audience can see heads, legs, tails but eventually every monkey settles and the bathtub is still again. Zeb is always the last monkey up the ladder. As he climbs into the bathtub, he makes a humming boom deep in his chest. It fills the stage. 
And then there's a flash of light, two of the chains fall off, and the bathtub swings down to expose its interior. Empty. Three. They turn up later, back at the tour bus. There's a smallish dog door, and in the hours before morning, the monkeys let themselves in, alone or in small groups, and get themselves glasses of water from the tap. If more than one returns at the same time, they murmur a bit among themselves, like college students meeting in the dorm halls after bar time. A few sleep on the sofa, and at least one likes to be on the bed, but most of them wander back to their cages. There's a little grunting as they rearrange their blankets and soft toys, and then sighs and snoring. Amy doesn't really sleep until she hears them all come in. Amy has no idea what happens to them in the bathtub, or where they go, or what they do before the soft click of the dog door opening. This bothers her a lot. Four. Amy has had the act for three years now. She was living in a month-by-month furnished apartment under a flight path for the Salt Lake City Airport. She was hollow, as if something had chewed a hole in her body and the hole had grown infected. There was a monkey act at the Utah State Fair. She felt a sudden and totally out-of-character urge to see it. Afterward, with no idea why, she walked up to the owner and said, I have to buy this. He nodded. He sold it to her for a dollar, which he told her was the price he had paid four years before. Later, when the paperwork was filled out, she asked him, How can you leave them? Won't they miss you? You'll see. They're pretty autonomous, he said. Yeah, they'll miss me, and I'll miss them. But it's time. They know that. He smiled at his new wife, a small woman with laugh lines and a vervet hanging from one hand. We're ready to have a garden, she said. He was right. The monkeys missed him. But they also welcomed her, each monkey politely shaking her hand as she walked into what was now her bus. Five. Amy has a 19-year-old tour bus packed with cages that range in size from parrot-sized, for the vervets, to something about the size of a pickup bed for all the macaques. A stack of books on monkeys ranging from All About Monkeys to Evolution and Ecology of Baboon Societies. Some sequin show costumes, a sewing machine, and a bunch of Carhartts and teas. A stack of show posters from a few years back that say, 24 monkeys face the abyss. A battered sofa in a virulent green plaid, and a boyfriend who helps with the monkeys. She cannot tell you why she has any of these things, not even the boyfriend, whose name is Jeff, whom she met in Billings seven months ago. Amy has no idea where anything comes from anymore. She no longer believes that anything makes sense, even though she can't stop hoping. The bus smells about as you'd expect a bus full of monkeys to smell, though after a show, after the bathtub trick but before the monkeys all return, it also smells of cinnamon, which is the tea Amy sometimes drinks. Six. For the act, the monkeys do tricks or dress up in outfits and act out hit movies. The Matrix is very popular, as is anything where the monkeys dress up like little orcs. The maned monkeys, the lion tails, and the colobuses have a lion tamer act, with the old capuchin female Pango dressed in a red jacket and carrying a whip and a small chair. The chimpanzee, 
whose name is Mimi, and no, she's not a monkey, can do actual sleight of hand. She's not very good, but she's the best chimp pulling a coin from someone's ear in the world. The monkeys also can build a suspension bridge out of wooden chairs and rope, make a four-tier champagne fountain, and write their names on a whiteboard. The Monkey Show is very popular, with a schedule of 127 shows this year at fairs and festivals across the Midwest and Great Plains. Amy could do more, but she likes to let everyone have a couple of months off at Christmas. 7. This is the Bathtub Act. Amy wears a glittering purple-black dress designed to look like a scanty magician's robe. She stands in front of a scrim, lit deep blue and scattered with stars. The monkeys are ranged in front of her. As she speaks, they undress and fold their clothes into neat piles. Zeb sits on his stool to one side, a white spotlight shining straight down to give him a shadowed look. She raises her hands. These monkeys have made you laugh and made you gasp. They have created wonders for you and performed mysteries. But there is a final mystery they offer you, the strangest, the greatest of all. She parts her hands suddenly, and the scrim goes transparent, and is lifted away, revealing the bathtub on a raised dace. She walks around it, running her hand along the tub's curves. It's a simple thing, this bathtub, ordinary in every way, mundane as breakfast. In a moment, I will invite members of the audience to let you prove this for yourselves. But for the monkeys, it is also a magical object. It allows them to travel. No one can say where. Not even I, she pauses, can tell you this. Only the monkeys know, and they share no secrets. Where do they go? Into heaven, foreign lands, other worlds, or some dark abyss? We cannot follow. They will vanish before our eyes. Vanish from this most ordinary of things. And after the bathtub is inspected and she has told the audience that there will be no final spectacle in the show, it will be hours before they return from their secret travels. And called for applause for them, she gives the cue. 8. Amy's Monkeys Two Siamangs, a mated couple. Two squirrel monkeys, though they're so active they might as well be twice as many. Two vervets. A ganon, who is probably pregnant, though it's still too early to tell for sure. Amy has no idea how this happened. Three rhesus monkeys. They juggle a little. A capuchin female named Pango. A crested macaque. Three snow monkeys, one quite young. And a java macaque. Despite the differences, they have formed a small troop and like to sleep together. A chimpanzee, who is not actually a monkey. A surly gibbon. Two marmosets. A golden tamarind. A cotton top tamarind. A proboscis monkey. Red and black colobuses. Zeb. Nine. Amy thinks Zeb might be a debrasas genan except that he's so old that he has lost almost all his hair. She worries about his health, but he insists on staying in the act. By now, all he's really up for is the final rush to the bathtub, and for him, it's more of a stroll. The rest of the time, he sits on a stool that is painted orange and silver and watches the other monkeys, 
looking like an aging impresario watching his swan lake from the wings. Sometimes she gives him things to hold, such as a silver hoop through which the squirrel monkeys jump. 10. No one knows how the monkeys vanish or where they go. Sometimes they return holding foreign coins or durian fruit or wearing pointed Moroccan slippers. Every so often one returns pregnant or accompanied by a new monkey. The number of monkeys is not constant. I just don't get it, Amy keeps asking Jeff, as if he has any idea. Amy never knows anything anymore. She's been living without any certainties, and this one thing, well, the whole thing, the fact the monkeys get along so well and know how to do card tricks and just turned up in her life and vanish from the bathtub, everything. She coasts with that most of the time, but every so often, when she feels her life is wheeling without brakes down a long hill, she starts poking at this again. Jeff trusts the universe a lot more than Amy does, trusts that things make sense and that people can love, and therefore he doesn't need the same proofs. You could ask them, he says. 11. Amy's Boyfriend Jeff is not at all what Amy expected from a boyfriend. For one thing, he's 15 years younger than Amy, 28 to her 43. For another, he's sort of quiet. For a third, he's gorgeous. Silky thick hair pulled from a shoulder-length ponytail, shaved sides showing off his strong jawline. He smiles a lot, but he doesn't laugh very often. Jeff has a degree in history, which means that he was working in a bike repair shop when she met him at the Montana Fair. Amy never has much to do right after the show, so when he offered to buy her a beer, she said yes. And then it was 4 a.m., and they were kissing in the bus, monkeys letting themselves in and getting ready for bed, and Amy and Jeff made love. In the morning over breakfast, the monkeys came up one by one and shook his hand solemnly and then he was with the band, so to speak. She helped him pick up his cameras and clothes and the surfboard his sister had painted for him one year as a Christmas present. There's no room for the surfboard, so it's suspended from the ceiling. Sometimes the squirrel monkeys hang out there and peek over the side. Amy and Jeff never talk about love. Jeff has a C-class driver's license, but this is just Lanyap. 12. Zeb is dying. Generally speaking, the monkeys are remarkably healthy, and Amy can handle their occasional sinus infections and gastrointestinal ailments. For anything more difficult, she's found a couple of communities online and some helpful specialists. But Zeb's coughing some, and the last of his fur is falling out. He moves very slowly, and sometimes has trouble remembering simple tasks. When the show was up in St. Paul six months ago, a Como Zoo biologist came to visit the monkeys, complimented her on their general health and well-being, and at her request, looked Zeb over. How old is he? the biologist, Gina, asked. I don't know, Amy said. The man she bought the show from hadn't known either. I'll tell you then, Gina said. He's old. I mean, seriously old. Senile dementia, arthritis, a heart murmur. No telling when, Gina said. He's a happy monkey, she said. He'll go when he goes. Thirteen. Amy thinks a lot about this. 
What happens to the act when Zeb's dead? Through each show he sits calm and poised on his bright stool. She feels he is somehow at the heart of the monkey's amiability and cleverness. She keeps thinking that he is somehow the reason the monkeys all vanish and return. Because there's always a reason for everything, isn't there? Because if there isn't a reason for even one thing, like how you can get sick, or your husband stop loving you, or people you love die, then there's no reason for anything. So there must be reasons. Zeb's as good a guess as any. 14. What Amy likes about this life. It doesn't mean anything. She doesn't live anywhere. Her world is 38 feet and 127 shows long, and currently 26 monkeys deep. This is manageable. Fairs don't mean anything either. Her tiny world travels within a slightly larger world, the identical interchangeable fairs. Sometimes the only things that cue Amy to the town she's in are the nighttime temperatures and the shape of the horizon, badlands, mountains, plains, or a city skyline. Fairs are as artificial as titanium knees. The carnival, the animal barns, the stock car races, the concerts, the smell of burnt sugar and funnel cakes, and animal bedding. Everything is an overly bright symbol for something real, food or pets or hanging out with friends. None of this has anything to do with the world Amy used to live in, the world from which these people visit. She has decided that Jeff is like the rest of it, temporary, meaningless, not for loving. 15. These are some ways Amy's life might have come apart. A. She might have broken her ankle a few years ago and gotten a bone infection that left her on crutches for ten months and in pain for longer. B. Her husband might have fallen in love with his admin and left her. C. She might have been fired from her job in the same week she found out her sister had colon cancer. D. She might have gone insane for a time and made a series of questionable choices that left her alone in a furnished apartment in a city she picked out of the atlas. Nothing is certain. You can lose everything. Eventually, even at your luckiest, you will die and then you will lose it all. When you are a certain age, or when you have lost certain things and people, Amy's crippling grief will make a terrible, poisoned, dark sense. 16. Amy has read up a lot, so she knows how strange all this is. There aren't any locks on the cages. The monkeys use them as bedrooms, places to store their special possessions and get away from the others when they want some privacy. Much of the time, however, they are loose in the bus or poking around outside. Right now, three monkeys are sitting on the bed playing a game where they match colored cards. Others are playing with skeins of bright wool, or rolling around on the floor, or poking at a piece of wood with a screwdriver, or climbing on Amy and Jeff in the battered sofa. Some of the monkeys are crowded around the computer watching kitten videos on a pirated wireless connection. The black colobus is stacking children's wooden blocks on the kitchenette's table. He brought them back one night a couple of weeks ago, and since then he's been trying to make an arch. After two weeks, and Amy's showing him repeatedly how a keystone works, he still hasn't figured it out, but he's still patiently trying. Jeff's reading a novel out loud to Pango, who watches the pages as if she's reading along. 
Sometimes she points to a word and looks up at him with her bright eyes, and he repeats it to her smiling, and then spells it out. Zeb is sleeping in his cage. He crept in there at dusk, fluffed up his toys and his blanket, and pulled the door closed behind him. He does this a lot lately. 17. Amy's going to lose Zeb, and then what? What happens to the other monkeys? Twenty-six monkeys is a lot of monkeys, but they all like each other. No one except maybe a zoo or a circus can keep that many monkeys, and she doesn't think anyone else will let them sleep wherever they like or watch kitten videos. And if Zeb's not there, where will they go those nights when they can no longer drop through the bathtub and into their mystery? And she doesn't even know whether it is Zeb, whether he is the cause of this, or that's just her flailing for reasons again. And Amy? She'll lose her safe artificial world, the bus, the identical fares, the meaningless boyfriend, the monkeys. And then what? 18. Just a few months after she bought the act, when she didn't care much about whether she lived or died, she followed the monkeys up the ladder in the closing act. Zeb raced up the ladder, stepped into the bathtub, and stood, lungs filling for his great call. And she ran up after him. She glimpsed the bathtub's interior, the monkeys tidily sardined in, scrambling to get out of her way as they realized what she was doing. She hopped into the hole they made for her, curled up tight. This only took an instant. Zeb finished his breath, boomed it out. There was a flash of light. She heard the chains release and felt the bathtub swing down, monkeys shifting around her. She fell the ten feet alone. Her ankle twisted when she hit the stage, but she managed to stay upright. The monkeys were gone again. There was an awkward silence. It wasn't one of her more successful performances. 19. Amy and Jeff walk through the midway at the Selena Fair. She's hungry and doesn't want to cook so they're looking for somewhere that sells $4.50 hot dogs and $3.25 Cokes. And suddenly, Jeff turns to Amy and says, This is bullshit. Why don't we go into town, have real food, act like normal people? So they do. Pasta and wine at a place called Irina's Villa. You're always asking why they go, Jeff says, a bottle and a half in. His eyes are an indeterminate blue-gray, but in this light, they look black and very warm. See, I don't think we're ever going to find out what happens, but I don't think that's the real question anyway. Maybe the question is, why do they come back? Amy thinks of the foreign coins, the wood blocks, the wonderful things they bring home. I don't know, she says. Why do they come back? Later that night, back at the bus, Jeff says, Wherever they go, yeah, it's cool. But see, here's my theory. He gestures to the crowded bus with its clutter of toys and tools. The two tamarins have just come in, and they're sitting on the kitchenette counter, heads close as they examine some new small thing. They like visiting wherever it is, sure, but this is their home. Everyone likes to come home sooner or later. If they have a home, Amy says. Everyone has a home, even if they don't believe in it, Jeff says. 20. That night, when Jeff's asleep curled up around one of the macaques, Amy kneels by Zeb's cage. 
Can you at least show me, she asks, please, before you go? Zeb is an indeterminate lump under his baby blue blanket, but he gives a little sigh and climbs slowly out of his cage. He takes her hand with his own hot, leathery paw, and they walk out the door into the night. The back lot, where all the trailers and buses are parked, is quiet. Only a few voices still audible from behind the curtained windows. The sky is blue-black and scattered with stars. The moon shines straight down on them, shadowing Zeb's face. His eyes, when he looks up, seem bottomless. The bathtub is backstage, already on its wheeled dace waiting for the next show. The space is nearly pitch dark, lit by some red exit signs and a single sodium vapor away off to one side. Zeb walks her up to the tub, lets her run her hands along its cold curves and the lion's paws, and shows her the dimly lit interior. And then he heaves himself into the dace and over the tub lip. She stands beside him, looking down. He lifts himself upright and gives a boom, and then he drops flat, and the bathtub is empty. She saw it, him vanishing. He was there, and then he was gone. But there was nothing to see. No gate, no flickering reality or soft pop as air snapped in to fill the vacated space. It still doesn't make sense, but it's the answer that Zeb has. He's already back at the bus when she gets there already buried under his blanket and wheezing in his sleep. 21. Then one day. Everyone is backstage. Amy is finishing her makeup, and Jeff is double-checking everything. The monkeys are sitting neatly in a circle in the dressing room, as if trying to keep their bright vests and skirts from creasing. Zeb sits in the middle, Pango beside him in her little green sequined outfit. They grunt a bit, and then lean back. One after the other, the rest of the monkeys crawl forward and shake his hand, and then hers. She nods, like a small queen at a flower show. That night, Zeb doesn't run up the ladder. He stays on his stool, and it's Pango who is the last monkey up the ladder, who climbs into the bathtub and gives a screech. Amy has been wrong to think Zeb had to be the reason for what is happening with the monkeys, but she was so sure of it that she missed all the cues. But Jeff didn't miss a thing, so when Pango screeches, he hits the flash powder. The flash, the empty bathtub. Zeb stands on his stool, bowing like an impresario called on stage for the curtain call. When the curtain drops for the last time, he reaches up to be lifted. Amy cuddles him as they walk back to the bus. Jeff's arm around them both. Zeb falls asleep with them that night, between them in bed. When she wakes up in the morning, he's back in his cage with his favorite toy. He doesn't wake up. The monkeys cluster at the bars, peeking in. Amy cries all day. It's okay, Jeff says. It's not about Zeb, she sobs. I know, he says. It's okay. Come home, Amy but she's already there. She just hadn't noticed. 22. Here's the trick to the bathtub trick. There is no trick. The monkeys pour across the stage and up the ladder and into the bathtub, and they settle in, and then they vanish. The world is full of strange things, things that make no sense, and maybe this is one of them. Maybe the monkeys choose not to share. That's cool. Who can blame them? 
Maybe this is the monkey's mystery, how they found other monkeys that ask questions and try things, and figured out a way to all be together to share it. Maybe Amy and Jeff are really just house guests in the monkey's world. They are there for a while, and then they leave. 23. Six weeks later, a man walks up to Amy as she and Jeff kiss after a show. He's short, pale, balding. He has the shell-shocked look of a man eaten hollow from the inside. She knows the look. I need to buy this, he says. Amy nods. I know you do. She sells it to him for a dollar. Three months later, Amy and Jeff get their first houseguest in their apartment in Bellingham. They hear the refrigerator close and come out to the kitchen to find Pango pouring orange juice from a carton. They send her home with a pinochle deck. And that was our story. This one struck a chord with me on its recurring question of where do they go? I referred in the intro to Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. Two of the most fundamental truths at a macroscopic scale, two of the earliest things we learn as babies, are that objects persist even when you can't see them, and that a thing can't get from point A to point B without passing through the space between. It's so well understood that screwing with these ideas, or seeming to, is at the core of most stage magic. It's why the movie The Prestige is so haunting by the end. Do these ideas continue to hold if we don't take them for granted quite so much? Hmm, yeah, almost certainly. But it makes for some good story possibilities if they don't. Now here's a point B that I'll be traveling to in just a couple of weeks. Panglicon 7.0 will be May 1 through 3, 2009. Will Wheaton, Jane McGonagall, Rasmus Lerdorf, Sarah Hoyt, John Mad Dog Hall, and the Candy Fab Project. More than a thousand geeks who gather annually in Southeast Michigan to celebrate science fiction and fantasy, free and open source software, and other geek interests. Packed with scheduled content, a half dozen conventions combined. Gaming, comedy concerts, new media. Mix and match a weekend that's just for you. So expansive, it's like a whole solar system to explore. Take the guided tour at penguicon.org. I'll be a guest at PenguinCon thanks to one of the organizers, Matt Arnold, who's also on the Escape Artists team. It's a great idea, a hybrid science fiction slash Linux convention. Two great tastes that taste great together. I'll be on a few panels about podcasting and making fiction happen in audio, and also presenting a session called How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love Ruby on Rails. You can watch me write a web application in three minutes or your money back. Uh, for the session, which is free, not the whole convention. Again, that's May 1st through 3rd in Romulus, Michigan. If you'll be there, drop me a line. It's always good to have folks to hang out with. I'll also be at Balticon on Memorial Day weekend. I'll talk more about that one next week. Escape Pod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives license. All of the rights are reserved by our authors. If you like this week's story, please tell a friend or blog about us. And if you can, we hope you'll consider making a donation via the PayPal link at our site, escapepod.org, so that we can continue supporting our authors. Also check out our sister podcasts, Pseudopod at pseudopod.org and Podcastle at podcastle.org for the best in horror and fantasy. Our music is by permission of Daikaiju. You can hear more from them at daikaiju.org. 
That was our show for this week. Our closing quotation comes from the great anthropologist and writer Lauren Isley, who said, I am not nearly so interested in what monkey man was derived from as I am in what kind of monkey he is to become. We'll bring you more monkeys next week. In the meantime, have fun. <laughs>